Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Uh, my name is Elliot, and I'm a, definitely a sexaholic, real sexaholic, whatever you want to call it. Um, I um, uh, came into these rooms in uh, July of 1994, and uh, by the grace of God and the steps of the fellowship uh, and the fellowship, I've been sexually sober uh, since September 2nd, 1994. And uh, and so and, and so the thing says four keys to progressive victory over lust. You know, I kind of always had this aversion to sermons and talks that. You know, had three keys of this and four keys to that, and and then somehow they would all uh, start with the same letter, or they're all a verb that starts with the same letter, or an adjective that starts with something like, "How can the keys to life coincidentally, you know, start with the same letter and be uh, all the same form of a word or the same type of phrase?" I never, uh, I never got that. So I just wanted to say the the keys. Um, for me were, uh, you know, when, uh, when Alan asked me about this, so these were, in, in, in the topic of progressive victory over lust, these were four things I thought back. So what were the things that really helped me uh, get, to get sober? And what were the, uh, so I just called them four keys. They're not the keys, and they're not really even all the keys for me, but they're just the four major things that I thought of. So I just wanted to, to say that that title is misleading, and I don't plan on preaching a sermon to you. And, all the four keys don't start with the same letter, and they're not all you know going to be a, a, a same form of a word. Uh, and I, um, and after um, you know twenty plus years in this program, and you know, and seeing people in uh, other walks of life or other spheres, and people in essay, and watching people over the years, and. You know, I've learned something and, and have watching myself that uh, that life has uh, taken a bite out of all of us and uh, that uh, I don't stand up here uh, in any way knowing uh, uh, knowing specifically the keys to anything. All I know is the, the truth for me, and, and sometimes that changes uh, over time. Um, and, I, and, and I'm learning also that that maybe one of my greatest assets has been this perfectionism that that I was somehow born with, and it's also my greatest character defect. Uh, it's what I've used to quell anxiety and um, you know try to be better than other people so that I can uh, compare myself and measure up. And so, whew, man, what a relief! I'm better than that guy. Uh, so. But perfectionism helped me, um, I think that character defect helped me to compulsively work the steps when I came in and uh, compulsively go to meetings and compulsively approach uh, certain things. And so it, 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 it has, like lust, when I was a young boy, lust served uh, a purpose of quailing my anxiety. And I was uh, about five or six years old when I started masturbating to orgasm. And, you know, when you're that age, you can't, obviously, your body's not ready to have an ejaculation, but you can masturbate to orgasm. And I don't know how I learned how to do that. I don't recall anybody showing me how. Um, I just know I was probably on average from five years old till age 28. It was at least once a day. I mean, there were some days I didn't, and there were other days I did it a bunch of times. So I would say it at least averaged out to one time a day, uh, you know, from age 5 to age 28 or toward the end of my 28th year, almost 29. Um, 
Maya, and I'm just going to say, you know, Maya, one of my earliest memories, and maybe this is why I've been so anxious and perfectionistic, is sitting in the bathtub, and it's about four or five years old, and and uh, was probably playing with myself and had an erection. I'm sitting in the tub, and my mother, the practice was to leave me in the bathtub, and she'd go do her things, and maybe she'd come back and clean me up, or she thought I would magically clean myself up, but I had my toys, and I had my toy, you know, that uh, the one that I played with the most, and she told me one time she came in there, and she, she looked, and I had an erection, and she was angry and she bent down and she pointed at my penis and said don't you touch that and so guess what (laughs) i'm here (laughs) i mean i touched it (laughs) i I touched it uh i touched it a whole lot (laughs) so um what (laughs) You know what she uh, what she wanted was uh, you know didn't have the desired effect. It just made it to where um, you know some of that um, you know that whole stuff of me not being okay. You know, and, and Marty talked a lot about that in his talk. Um, and and pardon me, Marty, if I misquote or misuse, I'm just saying what I kind of what I heard this you know this thing about you know the the shame of my shame and I'm not okay and um, you know and just learning to um, to heal that and uh, just now you know 20 21 years into this I'm starting to understand a little bit of why I did you know the things I did and and some of it was because that at my core I mean uh, I think Marty made a great point that, you know, you, we, your sexuality or his sexuality is intertwined very closely with spirituality. And so, I mean, I was broke, <laughs> you know, broken. Somebody tells me, don't you touch that, you know, that you're, you know, my core, I'm not okay. Um, you know, if it's not okay to touch my penis, uh, I mean, that thing must be really bad and therefore I must be bad. And broken. So I just, I, I just preface everything I'm saying that, yeah, like everybody else, life's taking a bite out of me. I'm not perfect, and um, and and I wanted to read a, a little thing in the big book to kind of highlight that when uh, Bill Wilson was two, about two years sober, I think it was when he wrote this. Uh, on page 15, he says, "I was not too well at the time." and was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. This sometimes nearly drove me back to drink. But soon I found that when all other measures failed, work with another alcoholic would save the day. And so the part I want to focus on, I mean, we always want to focus on the part about, you know, well, the, the key to everything is to go help somebody, you know, help another sexaholic. And I, you know, and I can't underestimate that. I mean, that's priceless. But I always miss the part where the founder of, our recovery uh, model, our basically our fellowship. I mean, obviously, sprang from that fellowship. He's two years sober. He's the founder. He's writing this, and he says, two years into it, I was not too well at the time and was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment that sometimes nearly drove him back to drink. And I heard a guy say one time that um, he uh, he said, uh, "Who am I to think I'm going to get a better deal than that?" Uh, that I'm going to get a better deal than Bill Wilson, Bill Wilson got. And so, man, uh, over uh, 21 years, I've had a lot of waves of self-pity and resentment. Uh, and I'm not trying to do this out of shame. It's just I really just want you to know I'm not an authority. This is just my story. And uh, But I would rather have my waves of self-pity and resentment and... What I would call is just being stupid. Humanly, you know, humans do stupid things. I've done a lot of stupid things. My measure of stupidity when I'm sober over the last 20 years is a lot better or a lot less than my measure of stupidity. Stupid plus drunk is way worse than stupid plus sober. And I'm going to be doing stupid things from now to the end of my life. (laughs) And uh, that's just the way it is. 
Um, I, I, I've never reached guru status, although I wanted to. I wanted to be revered. And uh, it took me several years to figure out that, that Harvey wasn't uh, a guru. He, he is in terms of uh, what he knows about recovery, his passion, how he can size me up when I talk to him sometimes and, you know, and, and zero right in. And, but he's human, and I'm going to tell you, he'll tell you. He does stupid stuff, and he'll sit there and he'll laugh about it, like, really hard when he's telling you the story. Um, so uh, definitely not perfect. Uh, uh, and I wanted to start out, too, you know, so if I'm talking about keys to progressive victory over lust, you know, and so there are, like, really four areas. Um, uh, for some reason, I only find three written on my book, on my page here. So where did I find, what's the fourth one? Oh, yeah, here it is, right here. <laughs> so... See, I'm crazy. Um, so, you know, in the spiritual tools, I, I, I want to start out by saying, uh, talking about gratitude a little bit. Um, I uh, thought about today, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Lonesome Dove, that the, the miniseries Lonesome Dove. And, uh, and every time I flip past it, I have to stop on it because it's just awesome. And my favorite part, is when uh, Augustus dies, and uh, there's this real intimate moment between uh, uh, Woodrow and Gus, and uh, and Gus is dying. He's had been, you know, had a spear in his thigh, and his and it has to be amputated, and and the infection spread to his other leg and he wouldn't let him amputate the other leg so you know he chose to die rather than you know not have both legs and as he's dying you know toward the you know in his dying minutes he he says he tells Woodrow or he calls him call, he, he calls him Woodrow he said uh, I wrote it down so I'd get it right he said my god Woodrow it has been quite a party hasn't it and i and i've thought about of late, if I were facing death in the next um, hour or day or whatever, I, I think I've, in a lot of ways, although certainly far from completely, moved past this fear of waking up in hell, you know, burning and being tormented. I would fight to live because I would miss it so much. Even the crap that I think I hate, I would miss it so much. You know, the fact that, you know, I can shave myself, you know, and the way the bathroom smells when I've had a shower and I've cleaned up and I leave the room and I come back in, that smell in the bathroom, that fresh smell. Um, you know, smell of clean clothes or you wash clothes and you walk outside and you can smell the bounce from the dryer, the, the sheet, you know, it makes the neighborhood smell sweet. Um, you know, I've got my own little house and my, uh, and, and I think I would actually miss the stuff that pisses me off. I'd miss the traffic because, you know, I get to drive. I get to drive to work. I can drive. I own a car. It's paid for. And I actually like the car. Um, you know, the, just the, just the, the, so many things about life are so wonderful. And, uh, and it's been, uh, it has been quite a party. Um, and, and I'm actually going to get somewhere with all of this. <laughs> Trust me. Um, another thought I wanted to, to share is, um, you know, the, the idea of one day at a time. And it was a great relief to me when I realized that all I had to do was stay sober till I got to bed. So I couldn't stay sober for 24 hours. That was too much for me uh, when I came in. That all I, all I could do was stay sober until I got to bed that night. So it's a lot easier to stay sober from the time I wake up till the time I go to bed and get to sleep um, than it is think about oh, a whole 24 hours. That's too much. Um, and so it was just till I got to bed. And that I, I heard someone say one time, and, and he was one of the people that really helped me be sober, and I, and I love him. And 
and his name was Roy. I never knew his last name. Um, and uh, he and his partner moved to New York, I think, a long time ago. And he used to talk about, I can masturbate tomorrow, but I'm not going to do it today. And so I kind of joke and say sometimes, well, I can put it on my Outlook calendar tomorrow for like 2.30 or 4.30 or 2.30 and 4.30 and 6.30 because I, I never did it more than, I never, you know, I couldn't do it just once, but I can put it, I can put it on my calendar tomorrow. I'm just not going to do it today till I get to bed today. Um, so, you know, that the idea of one day at a time, uh, another piece is, and someone reiterated it today, is the, the fighting against it. You know, when I was not doing it, you know, when I was going around trying not to do it, it was really, in my mind, was exactly the same as trying to do it because I was, all my energy was focused on not doing it. And guess what my energy was focused on? Lust. <laughs> it was... It was still, you know, folks, I can't look at that. I can't look at that. I can't look at that. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do that. And it never worked. Uh, and it didn't work when I was in this fellowship. Uh, when I first came in, I couldn't get sober at first. And, and it didn't work here. And it didn't work out there. Uh, so the, And it's like that actually makes it stronger. It's like feeding a 300-pound gorilla you know, hamburger, meat, and steroids, you know, it's just, it's, you know, the more I'm fighting with it, it's just like, it's just like getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And then it's, you know, it puts its foot on my throat. Uh, and um, so again, I, you know, some random thoughts I wanted to throw out before I kind of had this organized piece. Um, part of my, uh, you know, this is something that helps me too. Is that I have I've learned to observe myself and not judge myself. Sometimes <laughs> I judge myself a lot, even today, because uh, the, the act next door was a tough one to follow. So <laughs> it was good. So anyway, <laughs> I compare myself to everybody. Um, so, and I'm not trying to do that, um, but I can sit at a red light, and I noticed this about 12 years ago, sitting in a red light, listening to my Christian music, gratitude, tears running down my face, this great song is on the radio, and I'm at a red light, and I look up, the lights change, but the person in front of me hasn't gone, and I start going, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> so, so I, I, I do that today. So I uh, observe myself. I don't have uh, shame about that. I don't have shame about that like I used to. Uh, I just know that part of part of who I am is I can go from here to here uh, in a really short period of time, uh, and it's okay. I don't. Uh, I actually, I, I think it's funny. Uh, I laugh at my dad now, who was such an irritable man when he would. Uh, we would be riding down around the, the Rivergate Mall area when I was a little kid, and uh, me and him, my little sister, and he'd go over a speed bump too fast, and it would jar the whole car, and, and he'd go, God damn it! I mean, he was just so angry that, you know, it just, he exploded just because the car vibrated too much. Um, or he would, uh, we would watch him work on the car and not say a word and be sitting behind him, and he would turn around and go, Get in the house, you know, just because he couldn't stand us looking at him. So he was just this really irritable guy. So I get it honestly. Um, I mean, that's just, uh, that's, that's part of who I am today. And uh, so the last random thought is my gratitude. Um, uh, again, on gratitude. So a lot of guys come into this fellowship and they... Um, have had enormous acting out experience in their marriage. And they uh, 
come into this fellowship, they get sober, they recover, and then their marriages are healed, and they they don't live happily ever after, but they stay together, and uh, and they they do okay, and um, and I don't know what the percentage is, maybe half, maybe more, maybe it's more than half that that's the case, that the wife doesn't leave, that they stay together, and um, so. Um, so here I am. I, I came in uh, as a single person, and I was sober two years uh, as a single person before I got married. And uh, my marriage didn't work out. I was married seven years. There was no, uh, there was no lust. There was no uh, uh, pornography. There was no any of that. I was sober. And in fact, I was uh, what I would call stone cold sober during that time. And, uh, and my marriage didn't work out. And so, uh, moreover, I, you know, I found out that, um, you know, the average length of time that people are married that, you know, that, they're, that they are married before they get divorced is between four and seven years. So I got divorced at seven years. So not only am I just this run-of-the-mill garden variety sexaholic, I'm just this run-of-the-mill garden variety divorcee. I'm just a regular guy. Um, and I uh, had a lot of uh, bitterness and pain about that divorce. And my, um, my, uh, my sponsor at the time was uh, Harvey, and he, he really helped me through that um, situation. And, and he said, um, you know, when I was going, you know, had the, the bitterness and the anger, and he said, uh, he said, Elliot, look what she gave you. And then the light bulb went off, and I realized that uh, nobody else's DNA could mix with mine and create my child. And to wish away our relationship or wish I'd never met her would be to wish away my son. And now the way I look at it is I would stand in line to do it again. Um, And I am, uh, man, what she gave me. She gave me my son. And... uh, and we get along great. Like, I'd go over to her house on holidays. And, <laughs> I mean, we could write a book on, on the divorce experience. I mean, literally, we could write a book on how to be divorced and how to act and how to behave. And so, you know, I didn't get to be, um, you, know, this, uh, you know, this picture of sobriety, live happily ever after, and get married in recovery and you know, and everything's great, and we're in church and have 2.2 kids. And But my, my story is that I get to be a great ex, you know, and, uh, and that's only by the grace of God and, um, and, and you guys uh, helping me do that uh, because it certainly isn't any of, uh, of because of my virtue. Uh, and, and I feel compelled to, you know, because resentment, they say, is the number one offender. And I want to tell a little story about Dana, uh, my ex. And uh, a few years into our divorce, I had gotten really developed some resentment over something. I don't remember what it was. It was absolutely, absolutely, I was obsessed. And, you know, and, and I could tell that people were even like didn't even want to talk to me. So this is several years sober, mind you. And people didn't even want to talk to me because I was so poisonous with this. And, and so I um, called a guy in the fellowship, and he told me, he, he started reading from the big book, and, and he uh, told me that, Elliot, every time, this resentment is making you sick, and every time that you think about her, you need to do what the big book says, which was uh, to say to ourselves, you know, and I memorized it, um, uh, this is a sick woman, uh, God save me from being angry. Um, help me to show her the same tolerance, pity, and patience I would cheerfully grant a sick friend. God save me from my anger. And he told me to pray for her um, what I would want for myself. So that was back then, health, wealth, and prosperity. And, uh, and then to think about uh, the worst thing I'd ever done after that. And there were two things that were the worst things that I had ever done, and I would just pop those into my head. And so that when he told me that, the next day I was taking my kid and uh, camping for um, at Fall Creek Falls, he and his little cousin 
for like four days. And, uh, and over that four-day weekend, I bet you I prayed that prayer six or 700 times. And that's, I exaggerate a lot because I want to be admired and revered, you know. And so, but that's not an exaggeration. I mean, I was desperate. And I prayed that prayer over every time she came into my head. And I'm going to tell you, this is the only time that's, this has ever worked that way. But that resentment was gone by the time I was headed back home. And it hasn't come back. She's aggravated me a little bit, as I'm sure I've aggravated her. But that god-awful, sick, horrible, poisonous resentment uh, was gone. I mean, it was gone. It was removed. And uh, so that was, uh, you know, one of those... um, uh, spiritual tools. So that was one of the one of the topics, uh, spiritual tools. But I, I wanted to start with uh, you know the four things since I got the random stuff out of the way. Four things were the thoughts, and uh, so I'm this uh, this Christian guy um, became a Christian when I was 12 years old and was you know knew even then that the masturbation was a problem and I, I had so much. Um, you know, guilt and shame about it, and and I actually worked up the this courage to tell my pastor when I was like eighteen or nineteen. But before then, I just couldn't tell anybody. I wanted to tell my youth director and started to one time, but just couldn't bring myself to tell him about my problem with masturbation. And uh, but. You know, fast forward a few years. I mean, this is just, you guys know the story. You just you go through these times, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it a lot because the shame is just too much. And then you go through the times when, all right, I feel so bad. I'm going to get right with God. And, and I don't know if you're like me. I've had a lot of burning ceremonies of my pornography, so you young people don't know anything about that. So us older people had to buy our pornography, and it was on paper. <laughs> Not only that, we would drive way miles away to buy our pornography. That's right. So nobody that knew us, because it's all, it's very embarrassing. I've had it happen to me. Somebody from, that used to go to church with, and you got a, you know, a porno in your hand, and they walk up, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. And you know, you know, they've already seen it. It's in your hand. So, or the person that would talk to you while you're buying the pornography, you know, and, you know, they said, you know, I bet you can't wait to get home or something. You know, they would say something. It was like, don't you get there's etiquette. There's porn buying etiquette at the convenience store. Don't you don't talk about it. All right. So, so any of you guys, you old timers, did anybody ever talk about the porn you bought? The cashier say something about it. You know, I don't even like the, the the grocery store person to say, "Are those you know are those snack cakes any good?" I'm like, "Don't talk to me about my food. Certainly, don't talk to me about my porn that I'm buying." <laughs> so anyway, so the the paper porn, I have to tell you about that because I had lots of burning ceremonies, uh, burning my porn, and they were real pretty. I usually did it as always at night, and I would it was ritual. <laughs> And I'd set them on fire, and I don't remember if I'd get on my knees or not, but I'd just like, God, I never, I give myself to you. I'm never doing this again. And the next morning, I'm digging through the ashes looking for something that didn't burn so I could take it back in and masturbate to it. I mean, that, that's this sexaholic. Um, so, um, so, 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 was it, so I'm back at this idea of the thoughts. So I have all these, so you know that every woman I see, I'm undressing. Or I'm trying not to undress her. I can't go to church, you know. Can't go anywhere. You know, I'm objectifying anybody and everyone. And by the way, I I don't feel guilty about lust thoughts about people in church anymore. My disease doesn't have a conscience. You know, it just doesn't. You know, I, I really just don't even care anymore. If I went to a bar and saw somebody... Or if I went to church and saw somebody, I just pray for them. That's it. You know, it doesn't mean I'm bad. I, I hear sometimes guys feel guilty because they lusted after the person that was up on the stage singing. And I'm like, you know, so what's the difference in lusting after the person on the stage singing at the bar? You know, my disease just doesn't have a conscience. But my thoughts are just constantly 
about lust. And toward the end of my, my last binge, I mean, it was all about, it was, I would just eat up with it all day, every day. And if I, and, and really essentially what I did was I closed the, the, the curtains. I closed the, I didn't have blinds at that time. I had curtains, locked the doors, unplugged the phone. And when I, and so when I got off work, it was just masturbation all night, you know, masturbate a few times at night, masturbate in the morning if I felt like it, usually I did, and then get up and go to work, and then masturbate all weekend. So you can imagine the thoughts that have to be going on to feed that. Um, And then it gets to the point where you have to force thoughts, you know, because, you know, you've worn my my sensitivities out so much in my body, the tolerance is so high, I have to just like, I've got to really think of something, you know, that's uh, more dirty than ever to get aroused. And so, so it was, you know, the thoughts are just feeding this thing all the time. Um, and so I remembered, and during one of these times I was trying to get right with God, you know, I remembered that there's a Bible verse that talked about taking every thought captive. And I thought, okay, uh, I'm going to try that. Every lust thought that comes into my head, I'm going uh, to do something with it. I'm, I'm not going to think about it. And, and, I, and for, it was interesting. I observed that there was something to that. It seemed to, uh, there seemed to be something to it. I felt like this minuscule amount of relief. And what I'd later learned that that is, in fact, one of the foundations of being sober for me is I can't let any thought live, any lust thought live in my head. Um, But back then I didn't have the fellowship and I didn't have the 12 steps. So I hadn't had, you know, I hadn't been through the 12 steps of recovery or 12 steps of of SA. So there's no way I was going to be successful with the take every thought captive thing because... I, you know, I didn't have those two things uh, to, to you know, the, the three-legged stool, God, the steps, and the fellowship. I didn't have that, so there was no way it was going to work. But what I learned was that, uh, you know, when I came in here, I started hearing about the prayers. And, and I, I don't know how to calculate it. I probably could calculate and come up with an estimate. But that prayer, God, may I find in you what I'm looking for in that person. There was one time, it was right after I got divorced, I was at MTSU, and I'd been sober um, it was about nine years. After I got divorced, I uh, went back to school. And I uh, remember walking down the campus of, of MTSU, and, and there were people there dressed in ways that would be uh, appealing to my disease, um, lots of them. And I remember walking to my class, and I'm thinking about my class, but in my mind, there was this little thing going on that I'd never noticed before. I was praying the prayers, and it wasn't, I wasn't even doing it on purpose. I was just going through there. God, may I find you one looking at this person? God, may I find you one looking at this person? And I'm just, and I didn't even realize I was doing it. And the prayer, then I realized that the prayers had become a part of me. And the idea of not letting any thought live. Uh, so, and, and another thing about the thoughts, I don't feel guilty about the thoughts that I have anymore. Uh, and as sure as I say that, I'll have some one big old thought tonight. I'll have to call someone, oh God, I'm so bad. I just had this thought. I don't equate my thoughts with badness anymore. I mean, I just don't. I, I have no control over what pops into my head. I don't have any control of the vileness, the disgustedness, the situation. They just come. And what I learned to do with them is to um, uh, say a prayer. And, and there's this hierarchy that, that I kind of have. of. So the first round is, God, may I find in you what I'm looking for in that person, place, or thing. The second thing is, if that doesn't work, and most of the time that works. I mean, that's like a 85%, 90% early on. Well, maybe early on it was more like 50% when I first started. That would do it. Um, But then if that didn't work, I would pray the third step prayer. And 
And sometimes I might need to decide whether or not, if I prayed that it it had become a heightened situation, the thought was not leaving me, I might need to get on my knees and pray the third step prayer. So I might, there was this little bathroom where I worked at in this warehouse back then. And and, uh, I hope the, the other guys were, it was a little bathroom, and I hope the other guys that worked in the warehouse were fairly neat because I got on my knees a lot in that little bathroom. I wouldn't put my knees on a wet spot, but I, I wouldn't want to. <laughs> you know, I hope that, I hope that uh, when I went in there and it was dry that they were neat. But you know what? In the end, I didn't care because I wanted to live. You know, I was willing to. And I prayed in that little bathroom, and I hope that nobody, you know, had a fairly high, didn't have a three, it's a little crack. I hope nobody could ever see, you know, way far away. What's he, is he on his knees? <laughs> I doubt they did. That's my paranoia talking. But, you know, so that was, you know, so then there were times I would need to do that. And then there were the times I had to call somebody. And early on, I would need to be very explicit. And, you know, this is what I just thought. I just saw someone... And I would, and I would um, be really explicit and say the exact thought. And, uh, and, you know, and I would call guys, and I had these buds in the program. I had my buds, you know, the guys that were, you know, we were struggling to get sober. And then I had these uh, guys that, you know, they had six months. I think, that guy has it licked. That was what Roy was. He had six months. My friend Roy, I mentioned, I was like, Hey, guy, for the rest of his life, he is never going to have another problem. Six months sober, he's got it licked. I thought he was like God status. I called, I called Roy a lot. So I, and then I had a sponsor, obviously, and then I had, you know, I had two backup sponsors. That, so sometimes I needed somebody to tell me what to do. So if it was a minor situation, I might ask Roy. And then if it was a you know, more important situation, I would call my sponsor or backup sponsors. But, uh, uh, but you know, I, there was a hierarchy, and, you know, and then I would, you know, if it was really bad, I'd call my sponsor. And, uh, and then, you know, go to meetings. And, and, you know, I didn't share explicit things in meetings. I didn't think that was appropriate. I still don't think that's appropriate. Um, but I could say that I was struggling, um, with lust, which I don't like to say. I like to come in and talk about how great the 12 steps are working. And, and, and I'll say this, that, you know, Roy K says in the white book that, um, you know, closer to the heat of the action, the better. So when the, he's talking about, you know, when taking that action, closer to the heat of the action, the better. When I make that call, that's the best time to do it, not afterwards. I remember one time I called my sponsor and I said, uh, I just masturbated. And he said, you're supposed to call before, not after. And I was like, I was like, I thought he was going to say, oh, that's too bad or something like that. But he said, you're supposed to call before, you know, before, not after. And, And so you know, calling before and calling during the heat of the action. And, and I think the reason it's so hard to call in the heat of the action is because I just don't like to be vulnerable. I don't want anybody to know. I mean, that's a pretty intimate place that, that I'm undressing a woman or I'm getting ready to act out or, you know, I'm headed down to buy a prostitute or I'm headed to the porno or whatever. I mean, that's a pretty vulnerable place to be to tell somebody. And I always want to tell them after it's done or, or if I manage to get the power to succeed that, you know, I can call them and say, oh, guess what? I had a victory. Um, so along with those, you know, the, you know, part of that, all of these thoughts that I'm talking about and, and, uh, and doing something with every single thought, I had to uh, do it, you know, while it's going on. If it's a heightened situation and the lust won't go away, I, I needed to call someone and tell them about it while it's going on. And, um, so an, another piece about the thoughts is that um, someone said in a talk earlier that, um, you know, the first one's on God, you know, and the, and the second one is on me. And, you know, and, and, and I don't know how true all that is. I just know sometimes I can realize I can realize I'm, I'm I don't know I'm in a fantasy until like. 20, 30 seconds. I don't, I just don't know it. I don't, I'm not aware, but when I'm aware of it, that's when it's on me. Uh, 
but a lot of times I'm just not aware and, and I don't know and think, oh, you're in recovery. You can't be thinking about that stuff. Um, you know, and even just, you know, even, you know, 21 years into this, I, I still have that experience. I was thinking, hmm, you know, or see somebody in a car or whatever, and the movie starts to play, and I think, oh, okay, the movie's playing. Uh, God, may I find in you what I'm looking for in that person? Uh, or, you know, oftentimes I find myself turning off the radio and, and praying the third step prayer uh, to, to kind of bat it out of the park. Um, so, so, I mean, just the, the thoughts are just, even today, that hasn't changed for me. I just can't let that stuff live. And the good news is that I don't think about it that much. Um, you know, if I had to go through that stuff that I went through uh, early on, uh, you know, just like when I quit smoking in 1989, if I had to go through that crap I went through the first couple of weeks, Man, I might be dead now because I'd just keep on smoking. I mean, I can't live that way. That's torture. Um, so, you know, Harvey used to say, most of when early on, he used to say, early, you know, almost after every share, it keeps getting better and it keeps getting easier. And, uh, and, and with the lust, wow, that's, that is true. It, it does. And that gave me hope that it, you know, it keeps getting better. So, well, I'm, making this big deal out of the thoughts and it is a big deal i just want to tell you that my experience has been that that stuff doesn't the thoughts come a lot but i it's just so routine that it's just like they just deflect off they deflect off they come they deflect they deflect off and i don't even pay attention to it most of the time um so it is not uh any you know it's not grueling uh or terrible uh it does get a lot easier, um, and you know. And the the other real key for me were the the spiritual tools, and I've I've talked about those a lot. Where the you know all this overlaps the prayers, uh, the calls, and and for me, you know the steps, and 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 I sometimes I want to beat myself up for the kind of sponsor I was for the first several years. Because when I came in, and I told you when I first, you know, that what a perfectionist I am. So, God, you know, I came in here, and they said, you're supposed to work the 12 steps, and, and, and I did. You know, I, I, I was like, okay, that's what you're supposed to do. And my sponsor, you know, he, he had some expectations, and, um, and the guys that I was with, we worked the steps, and, and, um, and we, uh, you know, I, I cleaned house to the best of my ability, and um, but I didn't tell um, I didn't tell the guys that I sponsored a lot. I wasn't really proactive because I thought and, and I'm and I don't want to sound like I think I I did that a lot of just out of a character defect of perfectionism. And a lot of people they don't have that character defect. So you know some people that I s- sponsored I think they kind of suffered because I wasn't telling them hey you need to go do this 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 and this you know I was just like well they know they you know they'll do it and uh that's not what uh what everybody does uh but you you know for me working the steps and I think that the times I've gotten off the beam and believe me I've gotten off the beam there was one year in the 21 years where I only went to like a couple of meetings and um and I really got off the beam then. And I think that had I not had that experience of cleaning house and working through the 12 steps and particularly the, the ninth step and to do and, you know, and to continually as best I can do a 10th step, I don't think I would have survived those times. I think I would have gotten drunk. And I, I shared not long ago telling my story that when I went to my 30-year high school reunion, I didn't have to make any amends to anybody because I did them all at my 20-year reunion. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and I bring that up because Alan's in the room, and I, guarantee, I just about guarantee you Alan won't remember this, but on my way to my 20-year reunion, I knew there were some amends that I needed to make, but there was one I wasn't sure of, and I called Alan and I remember I was driving up the ridge and white to White House, and and I said, you know, told him the situation. I said, do I need to make amends? And he and I think he said something like, 
well, yeah, you do. <laughs> you know, he was like really sure about it. And I was like, oh, shit, all right. I, I didn't say that, but that's what I felt like. But, you know, he was the person I was able to get a hold of. So I, I needed his direction. I was about to get there. And, uh, but I, my compulsive view of working the steps, so I, you know, I made my amends, you know, the ones that I needed to uh, while I was there. And, and I did it in a tactful, polite way. Um, um, but, I, you know, I made those amends. And um, uh, I, the, the way I looked at it was I would look at it like, okay, this is Friday. By Monday, I can have this shit behind me. So that's pretty compulsive. But, I would, but it really worked because it was like Monday, guess what? It was behind me. So even though that compulsiveness was driving me, um, and so I say that to say the one, that one person that Alan gave me the direction on, she wasn't there. I didn't get a chance to make amends, so I dug up her phone number over the, you know, the remainder of the weekend and called her. <laughs> it was like, I'm getting this done. So, so there was a lot of self-will there going on, and I think that a lot of people would recommend that kind of drivenness and getting it done, but it... But I, I say that to say it, you know, cleaning the house had a lot of value because cause no matter what the, uh, maybe my my motives are sometimes, my motives are never 100% pure. You know, usually it's just self, you know, some sort of uh, self-preservation, you know, or something like that. And I just want to feel better. And so I just... Uh, would get it done. And uh, that doesn't work as well for me <laughs> anymore at age 50. It's just something about that. Um, it just doesn't work, and I don't feel that desperateness. I think that perfectionism and wanting to feel better and feel okay, and I use the 12 steps as a way to do that. If I, you know, I tried to work the steps perfectly. and uh, So there's a balance in there. Oh, and I want to say, too, that part about the motivation for being... Uh, you know, there's a point part where uh, Roy Kay in the White Book talks about being, you know, we none of us has uh, pure motives and being sober. So there was a, uh, a time early on in recovery that um, it was about five or six weeks, and there was somebody in there that I didn't like in the fellowship who was sober a little bit longer than me or a little bit less. I don't remember, but I didn't want to... Uh, I didn't want to act out because I didn't want that person to have a whole bunch more sobriety than me. So, <laughs> so, so any reason is a good reason, you know, to be sober. I mean, I don't regret that one single bit. You know, I'm glad that guy was there and that I didn't like him. And you know what? He's one of my best friends today. And uh, so I was, uh, you know, just this jealous. <laughs> I mean, God, it's funny how God uses our character defects. And then, and that's part of the the seventh step, I think, is is God removes the ones that He sees, you know, that they're, they're no longer of any benefit. So my perfectionism served its purpose. My competitiveness served its purpose. You know, the competitiveness of you know not wanting to somebody to have more sobriety than me. I mean, sometimes the character defects are, are really useful, and it's and it's a way to stay humble too, because man. Um, I'm certainly no saint. Uh, you know, if I'm wanting to do something, you know, something spiritual so another person doesn't have more of it than me, that's uh, definitely not uh, saintly. The uh, other part besides the, um, uh, the uh, just working through the steps and doing them with a sponsor, and, uh, and I really recommend to, you know, there's a part in the white book where Roy K. says, we don't slavishly follow another person's format. But one thing I do like is there are certain people, and, and you'll hear them talk about their, uh, their lineage. So when you hear that, those guys really have a really specific way of working the steps. And, uh, and I've seen a lot of success from that. I don't know if that would have worked for me when I came in, but I like it now. I like what they do. And so if you, you know, if you hear that and you hear those guys, they have very specific way of following the big book and working the 12 steps. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Um, and, uh, and I try to do that. That, that, 
that influence wasn't around when I came in. So uh, the fellowship. So I didn't know I didn't know anything about that. Um, in fact, I didn't even know anything about the first 164 pages until about eight years of sobriety. I think I I was reading the stories and. <laughs> My white book would literally, my first one fell apart, but I had no idea about the, you know, there were quotes I had heard or different things, but I didn't know about it. Um, but those guys have a really great, uh, you know, you know, really great approach. And, uh, and I would jump on one of those guys, um, if you're struggling, um, so, uh, you know, other spiritual tools, you know, I did a, in my perfectionism, I, I got to thinking that uh, I needed to work my four-step like these guys work theirs, the guys with the lineage. It's like, and so I thought, okay, I'm going to go back and do it like they do it. And they write it down, every single resentment they've ever had their whole life. And so this was about three years ago. I thought, I just didn't do it right. I didn't do it good enough. So I did it like them. And I had like 800. <laughs> I was like, shit, if I ever met you, I resented you. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's just about true. That's just about the truth. If I ever met you, I resented you by some little something, you know. Um, so that was, you know, it was, uh, that was, you know, there was some benefit in that. But I look at it now and, it, and a whole lot of that was just about me again trying to be perfect. You know, trying to be okay. If I'm perfect, if I can do what they do, and they work it more rigorously than anybody, so if I can do it as good as they do it, I'll be perfect. Therefore, I'll be okay. It's not about being perfect. It's just about honesty, openness, and willingness. You know, being as honest as I can. And so, another little tool. So if you come around these rooms enough, you will resent somebody. There's just, you know... I should just speak for myself, but my experience is I don't know how you can come to these meetings and not get a resentment towards somebody. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. That just, you know, it's going to happen. I remember Harvey telling me one time that somebody told him, and I did this, that when I have a resentment against somebody that I go um, uh, shake their hand, ask them how they're doing. (laughs) And so... So when I come and shake your hand and ask you how you're doing, you have to you have to say, well, does he do this because he really cares? Or has he got a resentment towards me and he's trying to get rid of? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you, <laughs> but, but I may actually have a resentment. And so that tool, that's a great tool. You know, the big book says, you know, the, the, the number one offender is um, uh, resentment. So, I mean, is that not a great tool? Is How simple is that? You don't like somebody just because of the way they look. I mean, how, I've done that. They're chewing their food. I'm like, look at that effing pig. You know, where does that come from? That's just me. And so you just go up to them, shake their hands. Hey, how are you doing? It goes away. It's like I have this disease of separation. I want to separate from people. Um, and... Um, so I don't know what time it is, 2.55. What time is this though supposed to be over with? Okay. Um, so certainly the meetings I went to early on. I lived in Greenbrier. I drove an 85 Caprice Classic. So, you know, that thing, you can watch the gas gauge go down when you <laughs> tromp on the gas. And I drove to, you know, and I, I was making like, was pulling down like 28 G's, <laughs> you know, so, you know, I, I never lacked for anything, but I, you know, I went to, I'd drive to Nashville from, you know, from Greenbrier to work, and most days of the week, I just stayed in Nashville for the 7 o'clock meeting or the 5 o'clock meeting, and then, you know, most days I didn't get home till, um, you know, 10 o'clock, till 10 o'clock at night. You know, we had the Thursday night meeting. It was at 8 o'clock. That was a big meeting. That was the big meeting. It was bigger than the Saturday meeting as far as its magnitude and reach. And so we'd go to that meeting. You know, I wasn't home till well after 10 o'clock. And, and I was willing to go to any lengths. I was desperate. And, and so I would stay over, you know, just I'd hang out. Sometimes I'd take a nap after work or go meet somebody. You know, and then Saturday, I you know, I drove to... Um, 
I drive to Nashville for the Saturday morning meeting. I may drive back for the five, uh, depending on what I needed or had going on. And, um, you know, three, four, five meetings a week, every week. I mean, I, I can't imagine what my life would have been like had I not had those um, those meetings. Um, and, you know, and, and again, that just goes to the buds I had in the fellowship, you know, the buddies that I had. You know, I would call, I remember calling people sometimes. Like, I didn't even know why I was calling. I think I was just afraid. Um, and I would call and they say, hey, what's up? And I just remember thinking, I don't know. I just need to talk, <laughs> you know, and, and I didn't know about what. And then, so the, there are logistics for me of being sober. So my, you know, my big thing is masturbation. Always at night before I went to bed and most mornings when I woke up. So I started, I slept with jeans on for the first two years of sobriety and never missed any sleep. And, and, and you know, and jeans aren't going to stop me. A chain in a chastity belt or a well, something welded isn't going to stop me. I'll figure out a way to have an orgasm. <laughs> so I wore jeans. So I wanted, in case I woke up in that state of craziness, that I would at least have a few more seconds to, to think, and, you know, another couple of seconds. So I did that for two years until I got married, and I thought my wife probably wouldn't like that. <laughs> or jeans to bed, so I quit doing that. And um, and then, uh, you know, that was a logistical thing. Every night before I went to bed, uh, between 9 and 10, I made a call. And, it, and they didn't have voicemails back then. We had answering machines. So answering machines didn't count. I had to get somebody. So I had a crew of people that I called every night. And then, I, you know, there are always these people. You may think I'm one of these if you call me that... You feel like you got to keep talking to them, but you really want to go. So I had me some guys that if I didn't want to talk, and Roy was one of them, my friend Roy that moved to New York, I'd call him and say, hey, Roy, it's Elliot, just check in. Okay, Elliot, have a good night. <laughs> and so, and that was it. But, you know, Roy talks about in the big book, big book this mis- I'm, a, I'm this misconnection, I'm disconnected. And so just getting connected before I went to bed, I didn't need to have any lust. But if I made that call every night before I went to bed, it was a lot. I felt like that gave me some safety in case I started getting crazy before I went to sleep. And I realized that if I could get out of the house uh, and head to work, I could probably chalk that day up to, you know, as being sober. If I could just get through, you know, that those danger hours, you know, going to sleep. You know, if I slept through and I could get out of the house, I was probably going to be okay. Um, and then, so, so again, there are some logistics. There's the bookend piece. You know, sometimes there were some situations I needed to book in. Hey, I'm going somewhere and tell somebody I'm going in. There were, there were places that I worked in the printing business, and there were places some of our customers did the, the pre-press work for pornographic magazines. And I would go, and before I had to go in there, I would pray, God, please help me not to see anything. I mean, I did not want to see that crap when I went there, but I had to go in there. Um, so I, I might get on my knees before I go there, or I might make a call. And that was part of my job. Those people weren't bad, and they weren't sitting around the light tables masturbating. They were at the light table. They were trying to make a buck, you know. But that's not me. I walk in there and see that stuff. I'm going to be in the bathroom masturbating. Um, so I needed some help. So, you know, bookending, you know, praying before I go, thinking about where I was going. And all of that, I can't do that if I'm not connected. So these ongoing daily calls to people. You know, if I'm connected to people, that phone for me weighs a 1,000 pounds. But it weighs like 990 pounds when I'm connected to people. It's a little easier to pick up when I absolutely have to make the call if I'm connected. Um, and the last piece that I just want to share, this, the delusion, it's about delusions, um, delusional thinking, really reality. Not even a porn star wants to be anybody's sex slave. That's reality, you know. And... And another piece of reality is, for me, is that, is that somebody in a pornographic movie 
has no interest in me. If I was there, they wouldn't be interested in me. You know what they're doing? They're at work making a buck. That's the reality. And so I sexualize and have these delusional thoughts about, and I put myself in that, and what that is, that's... It sounds so contradictory, but it's not even a sexual situation. That's an employment situation. And I make it into a sexual situation. Moreover, I make it into a sexual situation that includes me. Um, another thing that, you know, I, I, so I've been here 21 years, and uh, so <laughs> I look a lot different now than I did then. I thought I was really, like, good-looking back then. <laughs> so I would look at these guys in the program that were my age and looked like me, and they would be talking about They saw some young girl smile at them, and I think she's interested in me. They'd be sharing this stuff with me, and I would think, you are crazy. There is no way that woman is interested in you. <laughs> so it's delusion, you know, and, and I had those delusions. You know, the 20-year-old woman... You know, what are the odds? But there's still a chance, you know. And so part of the reality for me is thinking about, let's say there was some really sick 20-year-old supermodel that wanted to, to be with me, you know, that I would have sex with me. Where would that go? I mean, what happens after that? I certainly don't have, yeah, I certainly don't have the money to make her, you know, I don't have the world. I mean, I probably don't even like her, you know. I just want to have sex with her. And again, no woman wants to be my sex slave. They don't, you know, that's just not what women want. Even porn stars and prostitutes, they don't, that's not what they want. And so this, you know, and, and I would think, so back then, even when I thought I was all this, really I was like Billy Ray Cyrus, and, and I'm not saying I was good looking like Bill Ray Cyrus. I'm saying I had a mullet and I wore wife beater shirts all the time. So, 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 and I'm walking around, you know, and checking in the mirror all the time, make sure this is in sobriety. You know, I couldn't stand if I couldn't see at least two or three lines there. You know, I just, I was obsessed with my, my body image, but. But I had to assume in recovery that if a woman looked at me, that she was not interested in me. I had to say, I had to just make that assumption because I had seen enough people who were delusional. I know those guys were delusional. There's no way. You know, some of these grandpa guys in the program think a 20-year-old, there's no way. So I had to assume that maybe I'm delusional too. And so I would, you know, say, she's not interested in me. She's not interested in me. And I had to do that in part because I want to be lusted after. So it may be okay to think this woman is looking at me. But really, that's feeding my wanting to be lusted after. That's just another side of the coin of lusting. Another thing that, that really worked for me to, for, to break the delusional stuff is to say, Think about reality. I remember my mom when I was little and her pissed off moods, you know, slamming doors, running the vacuum cleaner on Saturday morning. And, and I grew up with three sisters and a mom. Guess what? Women stink up the bathroom just like men do. So I think about, you know, picture this. And a woman doesn't have to be a bitch to be bitchy, right? But everybody is bitchy at some point. So the, the reality is that these Objects, these perfect things, these fantasies I create in my mind, they're, they're, they at times are going to be bitchy people who stink up the bathroom. You know, and that really cuts into my fantasy. That's reality. Um, and so having these, you know, you know, kind of turn the situation around where, you know, I had some sanity. But underneath all of that, I have to say that all of those things aren't possible without God, the steps, or the fellowship. I can't see reality. Um, you know, I can't use the tools. Um, you know, I can't do any of this stuff that I've talked about unless I have God, the steps, and the fellowship. 
there's no way. There's no, there are no tricks. I mean, these sound like tricks in a way, but they're really just tools, you know, that help me along the way. But really, it's about God, the steps, and the fellowship. These things that I mentioned, I have to have them. They're indispensable, but they don't work. You know, it's like having a car. It's like, you know, a car may have a great stereo, it may have you know, great interior and cool paint job and great wheels, but it's not going anywhere without an engine. You know, so, you know, for me, the engine of the car is uh, God, the steps, and the fellowship. And, uh, and man, I haven't done that perfect as, as hopefully. I really hope that you hear I haven't done it perfectly. Maybe you'll be able to let yourself off the hook. Um, I remember this is the last thing I'll say. Harvey used to say that... Um, he felt like his growth was stunted um, because he was the first one. You know, he didn't have the benefit of all of these other uh, people uh, teaching him. You know, he had Cherry and he had AA, but he didn't have this giant fellowship of SA. He was it. Well, he was it for, I mean, there was one other guy for a while, but that guy committed a lust murder and went to jail. So then it was Harvey by himself uh, for a while. Um, so, you know, his growth was stunted. So I just say that to say it, you don't have to go through everything that I went through. You don't have to go through everything that Harvey went through or anybody in the room. Um, you know, it is, and I just say that to say sometimes I think that, you know, I don't deserve this or whatever, but you, some things you just don't have to if, if you listen to and maybe apply some of the things that some of the guys that have gone before you have done. And, and guess what? I'm not going to have to go through everything I would have had to go through if I even if I listen to you. Somebody was somebody that comes in 30 days. They give me a clue or a hint or some other way of looking at my recovery. I'm not going to have to go through everything I would have had to go through. So. Uh, I guess that goes to that open-mindedness. Uh, and so I didn't think I could talk that long, and, uh, but I appreciate you listening, and, um, and, uh, and God bless you. Thanks.